Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast with your host, Evan McElwain. What's the matter with the clothes I'm wearing? Can't you tell that your tie's too wide? Maybe I should buy some old tab collars. Welcome back to the age of jive. Welcome back to the Barry Capital Startup Sales Podcast. I'm Evan McElwain, Barry Capital's Director of Growth. And this week, we are joined by Mark Young, Head of Marketing at Dooley, to talk about modern marketing tactics. Great to have you on the show, Mark. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Evan. Excited about diving in today. Likewise. And so, Mark, just to kick us off, tell us more about you, your background, and a little bit about Dooley. Yeah, for sure. So, currently, the Head of Marketing at Dooley. If you've ever had problems copy and pasting notes into Salesforce or trying to update your pipeline in a hundred Chrome tabs and you're just like rage clicking through it and seeing the wheel of death, then we can probably help you out. Check us out, Dewey.ai. About me, it's been kind of a wild ride. I joined Dewey kind of in early stages as the first marketer. And now we're going to be kind of moving towards hyper growth by the end of this year. Only kind of my first two years in SaaS, but came from a background more in agency and enterprise selling to like CROs at big banks and kind of everything in between. And yeah, I mean, it's been a really exciting journey here and love to unpack some more of the uh, in-depth marketing tactics that I think more B2B brands need to be tapping into to create a moat and actually build some diversity in a very homogenized space. For sure. And, you know, do you think that sort of having coming out almost as an outsider to SaaS, you mentioned you've only, you know, only a couple of years in the SaaS space, do you think that that's actually helped you have more of a fresh sort of set of eyes on your approach and the strategies that, that you're experimenting with? Yeah, I think fundamentally there is just this misconception that B2B has to be boring. And that, you know, at the end of the day, even when I was selling to CHROs, they are still people. They still appreciate humor and subtlety and the nuance that really differentiates okay marketing versus the stuff that you go home and tell your partner. And I think fundamentally when we market more as like human to human and lean into these nuances, that's what great marketing is. And that's always been the litmus test for me is if I wouldn't go home and tell my partner, my friend, someone about what I saw today of, hey, did you see that amazing ad? Or what about that event or that thing that you learned? Probably should go back and try to do it again. Because I think that there has been just this, what I call the sea of SaaS. Everyone's followed the serious decisions playbook. They've wrote it up the same way. You come to every SaaS site, it's white it's blue. There's some subtle gradients. There's some abstract art. There is a video. There's like, I can line up a thousand of them and their marketing playbooks will all look exactly the same. The challenge with that is, are you memorable? No. Are you going to stand out in a same feed of a thousand other companies doing the same thing? No. So I'm all for build something that a hundred people will love as opposed to a thousand people will kind of like, because when you build something for that hundred people, that's going to become that much more viral and scale and get you raving fans and advocate that get you that next level. And I mean, you look at Dewey, right? We've raised now back-to-back rounds from our C to a series A with an additional, you know, 25 million and are continuing past hyper growth based mostly on the social first brand that we built and obviously the amazing product, right? But that's how you go from, you know, a very competitive space into someone where it pops up is be different, Right challenge conventional wisdom and kind of buck the status quo. Yeah, no, I love that. So Mark, one last question before we really get into the topic. What is one thing that no one listening to this podcast will know about you? One thing that no one would know about me. Yeah, so have always been a aspiring athlete, but was never actually very athletic. So 
growing up, you, you always kind of find like the niche sport that you fell into. And mine was fencing of all things. And very few people know about that. But at one point I had, you know, an Olympic gold or silver medalist who was training me for fencing, but I was terrible. He was trying to get me in, in a good spot and like never got there. And I was like his failed protege. So that's something that probably literally no one listening to this would know about. So oh, amazing. As a Canadian, I thought you were going to say like curling or something else as your niche sport, but, but fencing is pretty niche too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very niche. So Mark, I feel like every time we catch up, I'm always, you know, furiously like jotting down notes and just kind of amazed at something new that you're trying out in your marketing strategy that I haven't heard of anybody else doing. And so I know there's going to be probably some things that you maybe can't quite share yet publicly, but I am excited to dig in today to as much of it as we can, because I think it'll just help inspire listeners to really just get creative as they're thinking about new marketing tactics uh, that they can pull off, even with, with a scrappy budget. So you mentioned you've been at Dooley for a year and a half or so. To start us off, I'd love to just hear more about how you figured out kind of your overall approach and sort of your broader strategy when it comes to marketing at Dooley. Where do you even kind of start? We're going to get into more of the specific tactics and whatnot later, but just to help set the context, I'd love to just try to get inside your head and learn more about sort of how you came up with your overall direction in the first place. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you know, when I joined Dooley, one of the first things that I looked at was this philosophy of in what way can myself and everyone on the team become an ant? where you can lift a hundred times your weight and really deliver kind of well beyond what you otherwise would be able to do. And fundamentally, I think it's always about looking at the landscape and really trying to understand where your end users and target audience live and what are the opportunities. Because in the same way that I talked about before, most companies running the same playbook, I think that exists still. And even if you're in like a Red Sea market that feels really saturated, there always will be unique places that you can carve out a space for you. And I'm a huge fan of Kevin Kelly's essay, Thousand True Fans. It's great, very short read, would highly recommend it. But I mean, for me, it all started with just understanding the players in the market. And, you know, like Devin Reed over at Gong, one of the best content producers in the game. When I joined Julian, you know, we don't compete with Gong, all of our customers, and we, we use Gong ourselves, right? Like it's a complimentary platform, but Gong, what they've done is create amazing high-end, deep, like data-driven content. And I knew that coming in as a you know marketing team of one when I first joined Julie, we weren't going to be able to compete with the sales hackers or the gongs in like the social first content game and then building that out as like an inbound engine right? Because limited resources, right? We were scrappy. We needed to build a name for ourselves. So instead, what I started doing was looking for the axis that we could tilt the board in our favor. And like I said, when we're not competing with any of these companies, but it's important to know who owns share a voice. So I'm always about rescoping to your advantage. And what we did instead was I said, hey, you know, we're a product of a company here at Dooley, right? Our goal is to get end users, account executives, customer success, sales engineers, sales managers into the product and using, right? We'll end their Salesforce suffering and pains. And then they're going to refer and share to other folks. And, you know, that's how we've landed almost all of our cloud 100 accounts, right? It started with one, two, three users. So I looked at the space. I used SparkToro and a number of other tools to understand like where our audience lived. I went on 30 customer calls. I listened to the trends. I mapped them out in chronological order. There are aha moments. I went and had 15 live ones myself. And I really unpacked like the core ahas behind Dooley. From there, I would then look at the fundamental way that the market had been constructed and seeing where reps were spending their time. And I noticed that there was this very unique niche that no one was really playing in within sales humor. 
and there were VPs of sales, chief sales officers, all the way down to account executives that I realized, you know, sales is a stressful job. People need to blow off some steam and have some fun. And I noticed that there were very, very few B2B players like capitalizing on this. So I said, hey, this could be a really interesting niche that we could tap into and use as the foundation to start building our brand strategy and our moats. You know, flash forward to where we are now. And, you know, in the last 90 days, we've done more than 9 million organic content impressions. Our web traffic, you know, since doing this is up over 3,000%. And I mean, all of this has been part of what we've done in terms of just building awareness in a unique niche and tying what we do back to pain. And I think as long as you can do that in a human way at scale, you don't have to compete directly in the same arena as someone else has defined the board. You can start playing chess when they're playing checkers and really frame it back in your advantage. Yeah, I love that. It's, I mean, looking back now, however many, you know, 12, 15 months, whenever you really started kind of digging into that strategy, these things are always obvious looking back. It's like, of course, like people are latching onto this stuff because it's like hilarious and they need to blow off steam. And I think also just within startup sales, there are kind of lots of funny sort of inter-team like dynamics, you know, even when just yes. thinking about like the SDR and the AE and the sales manager, it's like ripe for humor and kind of poking fun at some of these dynamics. And so, yeah, it, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, and also I think just having seen what's come to fruition with that as a starting point, yeah, it's just really kind of cool to follow that, that journey. So once you had that, right, once you're like, okay, we're going to sort of play our own game at this, we're not going to be able to do this like, you know, backed by a billion data points. Here's some crazy insight. Instead, we're going to go more of this humor angle and try to get in front of our audience that way. How do you go about going deeper and saying, okay, here's kind of our broad idea, broad strategy. Now we need to come up with some specific tactics to execute on. What was that ideation process like? I'd, I'd love to hear uh, sort of more, just more about that. Yes. I mean, what I always like to do is just try to find trends. And I think at the end of the day, it's much easier than a lot of folks realize. You know, Jake Knapp, the sprint book, one of my favorite from Google's methodology, you can literally get a trend from speaking with five people. You don't need 500, you don't need a thousand. Usually you start patterns to merge at five. So what I started to do was really just unpack what were some of the themes that were successful in the sales humor niche. And I wanted to see how those themes came back and linked to the social and emotional pains that our users were feeling. And fundamentally, when you kind of look at those together and you sense patterns like a Venn diagram, you can start to see overlap. So one of the biggest things that we you know we've seen at Dewey that almost every like AE, CSM, like any salesperson who's like an IC role has experienced now is this feeling of like being shoulder tapped by the manager or that pipeline panic text you get at 4.59 p.m. on Friday that's like update Salesforce when you're about to jump off of your partner and go have drinks and, you know, have some fun. And it's like that worst feeling in the world. And now imagine Dewey comes in and all of a sudden, like what took an hour and a half to do is done in minutes, right? you got the CRM police off your back. There's no more shoulder taps. Like you're with your, your family now having fun, enjoying your time. That's a strong emotional and social message that when you can take that and link it back to humor and understand some of the trends and themes that are performing well and link it to your message, I think that's where fundamentally you start to get kind of like almost product market fit for content. I think the worst mm. thing that I see is companies try to make it about them as opposed to making it about a problem or something social or emotional or personal. It's like, oh, you know, if we started putting up ads that were like, 
Dooley and here's all the problems it solves. It's like amazing. No one would care. No one would care. Right. But if I have a picture there that's an animated GIF of Kermit the Frog madly typing on a typewriter and it's like trying to update my pipeline at five o'clock on Friday so I can get home, that's a funny thing that's going to reach 300,000 people and people are going to be looking at your brand and talking about the product. Right. But it's not about us. So I would say we, we found the ways to contextualize it. I'm, like, I'm not perfect at this. Our team is not perfect. You know, all the folks over at our partners and sales humor and the daily sales, like we lean on them and they've been great strategic advisors and creators. But I think it's just all about taking a chance and trying to make sure I'm a huge fan of like the strategizer framework and linking everything back to like the social and emotional pains and gains a user wants to create. And really just making sure you've mapped that in a swim lane about what phase in the buying journey people are experiencing what and how your messaging should line up in that sequence. If you've done that and it's on paper, like just throw it in Miro, throw it in somewhere that you can visualize and share with the team. That is half the battle in my experience. Yeah, I really like what you're saying in terms of just the continued focus on the problem. And I think it was also... Devin Ray, I don't know how many times he's going to get a shout out today, but I mean, you two are kind of the kings of like SaaS content right now. So it makes sense. You know, one of the other tidbits and it's, it's, it's right in line with what you're saying is if you really show your end consumer and end user that you have a real understanding and grasp of the problem and you can show them that, that you have an you know, intimate connection with that problem, they're going to assume you have the solution to it. If you're able to really make yes. something like that, that resonates. And so I love that example of you know, tying it to that emotional connection of that shoulder tap or, you know, trying to cram it in before that that pipeline review meeting. Like I could see how that just elicits that reaction of folks and they say, wow, okay, like, yes, I would anything to solve this problem, especially a product like Dooley, that could, that could make it easy. So it sounds like you sort of just kept on that approach of like, hey, I'm going to really find them where they live. I'm going to follow these trends. And then we're just going to come up with content that that's going to get them excited and engaged wherever that may be. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of contextualizing by channel and making sure that the content you're serving by channel is the content that folks want to consume on that channel. I know that there are a lot of marketers out there that love the pattern disrupt to take something really B2B formal and bring it to Facebook. And I think it's a great, it's a great motion. What we've tried to do is exactly what you've outlined. And again, like love Devin Reed. I think he's like one of the best in the game. He's like constant source of inspiration for me. And I think they built one of the best content engines, if not the best of all time in SaaS. And I think at the end of the day, as long as you can take the right message and serve it to the right user in the right place in a way that it doesn't feel disruptive, it feels like, oh, look, I want to consume that, right? Like when I look at those, right, hundreds of thousands of people that have seen our content across all of those millions of impressions, even in the last quarter, I know that this comes through only at the tip of the iceberg, right? Because of the, I don't know, 100 connection requests that might come in this week of folks saying, oh, I love the memes. It's so funny. It's great. You're amazing. Like made my day. You still don't hear from the thousands and thousands of folks that do see the content. And I think as long as you make sure that you're not trying to drop like content that doesn't fit the channel in that buying process, you're quickly going to get ignored. At the end of the day, I'm a huge fan of Brian Balfour's four models. At the end of the day, like a product needs to fit a channel. Channels do not fit products. So you need to make sure that not only like your emotion, but your customer acquisition costs and like your average revenue per unit. If you haven't built out the right motion where like your channel product fit works, it's not going to scale. And the worst part of it is if you find yourself in the messy middle where like this dead zone where your ARPU isn't quite high enough to justify like an enterprise sales motion, like content and events, but it's kind of in this middle where you can't do like virality or like user generated content, like UGC viral SEO, then you end up in a spot where like, you're just going to 
sail through the floor. And I see so many companies like try to thread that line in the middle and it just ends in disaster. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point. You really do need to figure out the math as you're going through this exercise of where do they live? How do we want to reach them? What's going to work? What's the channel? Because you could figure all that out. And if the math doesn't work, then like you're you're SOL. What about, you know, I'd love to just give a couple examples of, of what this has actually looked like in practice. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely happy to go down two tracks here. The first one, I can kind of continue the conversation around like the sales humor niche as an example, right? So, you know, because Dewey is this connected workspace for revenue teams using Salesforce, you know, we primarily have like two components, right? We have like a pipeline editor and we have a notes portion of the tool in addition to kind of everything else, but that's a simplified version. So what we did is we took the fundamental themes that tie back to pain in our business and started creating stories around there from a kind of a very top of funnel motion where imagine you're seeing one of the funnier pieces that got a lot of traction was we had this scene from a TV show of two people holding someone down and they're like struggling to get free. And the caption reads like, my sales manager is forcing me to watch Salesforce trading at the beginning of Q1. Or, right, it's like that same scenario with the caption reads like me watching Salesforce refresh and delete the note that I spent 30 minutes typing, right? And it's like, this is the stuff that like everyone has experienced before at some point in their life as an AE or a CSM or whatever it is entering the Salesforce. And it has this like funny, immediate reaction. So imagine that happens, right? That's your first piece of interaction with Dewey. You like it, maybe you drop a comment, maybe you tag your team. That's typically what happens. You go about your day. Maybe, you know, two days from now, you see an article from us or a poll as like, hey, what frustrates you most about Salesforce? It's like, oh, a copying, pasting notes. Like, that's just the worst. Click that poll, maybe like it, tag another friend. Maybe a few days from now, you see an article from us. You're like, oh, like, that's really interesting. You come across the Dewey site. Like, wow, this, like, this really does solve my problems. And wait, like, I can start for free. Signs up, starts using, syncs a note to Salesforce in 30 seconds. And is like, wow, like game-changing. Invites two of their friends in Slack now there's a team of five piloting and now we're talking to the sales manager who's saying, Hey, like my AEs found you on like Instagram. And now, you know, we went from 20% hygiene to 90%, like overnight. And my one-on-ones I'm like coaching, I'm not being the CRM police. Like, this is awesome. That's typically what the motion has looked like for us. Where like, we've had a uh, calls that we've one closed, like one call closed deals just from Instagram. Someone would pop in from Instagram, they would book a demo and like that call just closed sign the deal right there done. Like it's been, very unique motion that like I've never built before. And I mean, it's something that we're still finding the best way to kind of like scale and optimize. But I think at the end of the day, as long as you can understand like a real user journey and not be the company that tries to drop someone in just a webinar and then email nurture them times a hundred, you know, over that same early 2000s playbook, people hate that. It's the worst. You're going to get unsubscribed. You're going to get swiped into the wrong folder. So like treat social, even paid social, like you would nurture. If you want to get a message to people, you know, and Chris Walker just posted about this. Yeah, I thought it was just brilliant. Use paid social as your form of nurture to get the right message in front of the right audience in the way that they expect on that channel, as opposed to just doing like email drip ad infinitum because it's going to be your death now. The second piece I can talk about quickly, you, you know, the, the hot sauce deal. So Fire Talks is a show that we host that we're, we're kicking off season two coming up. And 
we've had some of the folks like the team over at Gong, Udi, the CMO at Gong. Uh, Devin was away at the time, but we had about 10 of the folks in the company on. And essentially, we have a 60-minute live Q&A on LinkedIn, streaming on LinkedIn Live, where we have 10 of the world's hottest hot sauces and talk all things sales and growth. And it's been something that spun out as a concept where Chris, our CEO, had loved the idea and we wanted to make it happen. And, you know, I took my $20 of my concept and just some creative outbound and, and made it happen. And, you know, now we've had everyone from Scott Weiss and Amy Volis and, you know, Udi at Gong and a lot of really well-known respected people in the SaaS community online having hot sauce with us. And it's created a very interesting, unique pattern disrupt that breaks through the Zoom fatigue and the event fatigue. And that same invite you're getting from 150 companies two times a week about joining their conference or their event or, or whatever it is. And you know that you're gonna get an email drip from seven sponsors the next day that you're gonna to have to unsubscribe from, right? Instead, come have some fun, have a laugh, learn, because we still deep dive on the content and know that like no one's going to be drip campaigning you about anything going forward. Like you're just here, you'll consume the content, you'll get to know the brand and that'll be, you know, your experience with Dooley. And, yeah. And it is, for those that haven't seen it, it is genuinely hilarious because you're watching these very well-known sales leaders just put in this like ridiculous situation where they're like mouth is on fire. They're being asked like kind of hard questions and expected to stay coherent and, and hold it together. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And so when you started getting going on that, cause I think the other thing just around that, which I think really helped make about not only the event itself, but like the promotion of the event and like having guests do funny teasers where like you have them try one of the hot sauces and then like, you know, they're yes. sort of dying, like no traditional sales professionals is doing goofy stuff like that on their LinkedIn page. And so I think that that instantly catches people's attention. How did you, maybe there's no secret sauce here. Maybe it's just like, oh, I'm like good at editing. But like, how did you even go about like creating those videos? You have the like music and the intros and the outros and right. like you're a team of one who's doing this on a scrappy budget. Any any other kind of tips there for, for lean teams that are trying to really execute high quality stuff like that? Yes, I mean, this was my initial challenge, right? We had this concept and we wanted to scale it and we wanted to do a pilot. We did a pilot last year. We had Morgan Ingram, we had Larry Long Jr., James Bodden, and my friend Calvin Patterson. And we sent them just three hot sauces. We sent them three of the hottest hot sauces. So it was like a lean budget. And we used just some, really it was kind of like a fear of missing out slash peer pressure to get people involved. And, you know, fortunately like they, they came in and they did it. And it was such a hit and people loved it. And what we realized quickly was like it, it had a viral capacity where people wanted to see their managers, people wanted to see their teams, their C-suite. And for me, as the person like hosting, doing the editing, doing the event promotion, like building this out, like it's a daunting task for any marketer, let alone like a team of three. So what I tried to do was find the fastest ways to make things efficient. So instead of hosting a Zoom and having to deal with licenses, because the first time we did it, we had more attendees than we had capacity for our license we instead moved to LinkedIn Live. And at that time we had, you know, Daniel Disney's a really good friend and we had partnered with him. And he said, yeah, like I'll host it on my LinkedIn Live. So boom, we had it on LinkedIn Live. So we had LinkedIn events. To do LinkedIn events at that time, they had just wrote up the ability that you can invite people directly from LinkedIn. And now you can kind of toggle off whether or not you want to receive invites, but it'd be very, very easy. I could just send a list of the 300 people that had wanted to come and invite. And then I'd send them a DM with a little bit of a blooper about the show. And it created like this rave mentality where people like excited and they want to know when the next one was coming. And then I said, okay, like what else can we do to make that 
go further. So it's like, oh, we'll have people come on and nominate folks that they want to see after they've survived. So we had these like golden toilet trophies made with fire on them that was like, you survived the hot seats. And then they would survive, they would nominate someone, they would then be that introduction as like, hey, I did this, now you have to do it. And then as part of that, we created these viral trailers that I just built in After Effects, where we'd have folks record like a 90 second clip of them eating the hottest sauce and just letting people know like what was gonna happen about the event. And video editing is one of those things that like, honestly, if you're a scrappy team, there's some pretty good folks you can like outsource to Fiverr if you can't do it yourself. But I mean, like I'm self-taught in After Effects. I did all the post-production myself. And I mean, a lot of it is just grabbing stuff from places like Invado, right? Getting some templates and piecing together 10, 20, 30 things to create something. And then that template that now for Fire Talks with the music and everything, it's just ready to go. And you can duplicate, put in footage, add some subs, scale it out times a hundred people. And you'd create one thing once that becomes like a core pillar of like the brand that people now know fire talks for like i play that music i know that like kyle lacy still has ptsd from amazon packages landing at his house because we sent him like so many hot sauces <laughs> kyle cmo lesson we in a good friend kyle i appreciate you and uh, thanks for braving the hot sauce yeah i love that i mean that was going to be one of my next questions was i'm curious you know these are these concepts are really fresh and, and original and I can see how they'd have that instant appeal when you first launched them because they were just so different. And so I was curious how you kept evolving them over time to keep people coming back. But it sounds, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like you started inviting different types of people. You had people start nominating. I liked how you all started doing the sort of team takeovers where you'd have like a bunch of uh, yes. one company. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So yep. I, I like how not only have you all had that sort of creative push to start, but then have kept evolving to keep it interesting. I think that's super important. Yeah, I think fundamentally the biggest challenge is making sure that you don't become redundant or that people expect what you're doing. I think, you know, at the end of the day, Kyle Lacey always reminds me of this, is like surprise and delight and always possible. Like they just did an event at Lessonly and it was Super Mario themed. And he changed his title from chief marketing officer to chief Mario officer. And his headshot is him in Mario cap. And he got an outbound automated prospect message that said, Hey, Kyle, I've been researching a lot of chief Mario officers recently. And I've been finding right. And like his post went viral and it was hilarious because he was surprising. He was delighting. He was doing something different. Right. Great marketing teams never get complacent. And my go-to inspiration is always ironically enough, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift has reinvented herself more times at like the youngest age than like anyone that I know. And I think that the best marketing teams will take that same approach in reinventing and making sure that they never just become complacent with what they're doing. They're always challenging. They're looking for that edge. They want to make sure that they are on the boundary of doing things, but know that when you are there, there will be haters that do not like what you do because you are doing something different. You are telling them that the status quo, right, is not something to maintain a line on. So just be aware that when you come into this arena, know that great marketing will not appeal to everyone. If your marketing does appeal to everyone, you've appealed to no one and accept that fact that there will definitely be critics about what you That's what I kind of wanted to get into next, right? Because some of these ideas are, I mean, they're not just far, like they're they're not, in, they're nowhere near the box, right? They're, they're let alone far outside of it. So like, how do you, even go about, for instance, like getting buy-in internally to try some of these less traditional ideas? Or was the org, you know, so small when you joined that it was just like, oh yeah, try whatever. We're trying to build a brand. Like let's, let's, let's just try stuff. Was that any, any other tips for as folks are trying to get buy-in from the team to maybe take risks with, with their marketing approach? 
Yeah, I'd say it's twofold. The first and most important part comes down to having psychological safety within your internal team and making sure that your leadership are bought in from the top down, right? So when it came to Fire Talks, Chris, our CEO, who's you know one of the most creative people I've ever worked with, had been wanting to do this concept for years and just had never been able to have like the folks on deck to execute it. And I was like, yeah, like let's make this happen, right? So really, really important when you think about your team structure is having a leadership team that gets marketing, that understands the value of brand, how to build a moat, and then really making sure that you have implicit trust in going and doing this, knowing that it's an experiment and you're venturing into, these are new territories, right? You're not running the same playbook that you can know, you'll get a 6.6% conversion and turn that into, right? Like a CAC payback period of four months that you can model. Like when I'm coming in and I'm looking at, oh yeah, fire talks, hot sauce show. Yeah, like I can actively predict like what's gonna happen from this. No, I would be lying if that was the case, right? So that's kind of step one. And step two is finding small ways to prove success without initial investment. So low lift. So before we invested into, you know, some of the sales humor niche, we had done pilots with all of our partners, or we just said, Hey, like, let's test one piece of content, two pieces of content, three pieces of content. Let's track this down the funnel and see what, what that looks like. Right. So like our first piece of content was the scene from Indiana Jones of someone at a computer and it's like, oh, I'm just going to update Salesforce real quick. And then the second scene is them as like a skeleton melting in the chair, right? And like that resonated with people because like that's a pain that they felt. And, you know, we immediately saw the brand traction, right? Added 300 followers to LinkedIn. All those people came back to the website, new demos booked, new conversions, new opportunities in motion. That's a small witness test that isn't extending you out $10,000 in a partnership you can't recover from. It's like find the way to scope down to crawl, walk, run at the minimum viable product executed in a contained area that's not going to have blowback if you're trying something wild and then just like be really careful to make sure that you establish clear guidelines about what rules and lines you are willing to cross and which ones you aren't right i think they're fundamentally within b2b like there are just some that you you don't cross right don't get into religion politics any of the areas that you know are historically polarizing like make your bets intelligently and just have that be agreed upon beforehand. So there's never any questioning after the fact of saying, hey, we did this, right? We were all aligned what we were doing. Everyone was bought in. There was C-suite all throughout the company. It laddered back to the vision, value, and mission of the company. And that you scoped it down to the minimum viable product test, launched it, evaluated that, and then used the data that you had to inform what you would do more of and what you would do less of. Yeah, no, totally. And I think there's plenty of space to be kind of edgy and, and punchy and different without going into politics and religion and some of those like hot button areas. So yeah, it make, makes a ton of sense. I mean, we've talked about some of these ideas that you know started off in this MVP form and have, have now grown into really well-known initiatives within the sales community. Have you tried anything that just was a total flop and that just didn't work? And if so, would love to hear any kind of lessons learned. Yes. I mean, early days when we were experimenting, the first April Fool's piece of content that we created, we were like, hey, what if we found unique ways to turn our product video into something that could have like a user, like UGC, like user generated content motion. So we did this, we had someone who's like a real descendant of some of the Highland Vikings dub one of our product videos. And it was pretty wild. It was pretty out there. And, you know, we published it and you know, a bunch of folks got a laugh. We had a few customers reach out that said, Hey, I want to record like the Boston accent version of the Dooley product video and a few of these. And it was one of those things that just took way more creative lift than we originally 
wanting to put in to turn that into a sustainable engine. But it's that same kind of pillar that we've used across every content strategy we've done is what is the capacity of this one piece of content to allow us to produce eight more pieces of content from it, to create new partnerships for brands, right? For referral, for affiliate, for all those things. Like, what does that mean? So I think as long as you create an engine there where whatever you're doing is helping you ladder up like a snowball down a hill to something better, don't make something happen that just like a linear input that's never going to grow with you. Try to think about using linear motions to get to a loop so that loop and that flywheel can expand faster and, and, you know, make you that ant carrying a hundred pounds when normally yeah. you could carry one. Yeah. Like going back to your other example, like you did a really good job with the intro and outro of these, of these promotional snippets. And then once those are done, they're done. And you're not having to like yeah. recreate that in a different accent each time. It's just, you plug it in with the clip they send you and you're kind of off to the races. Cool. Well, a couple last things. So Mark, part of marketing to me feels like it's this constant game of catch up and everyone's trying to match what their competitors are doing. You know, oh, they got a booth at the conference. We need to get one too. Oh, they're ramping up spend on like these three keywords on Google. Like, let's do that too. They're putting out content on XYZ. Like, let's copy it. It seems like you've, and we talked about this a bit earlier, you've kind of largely drawn inspiration outside of your immediate space or your immediate kind of vertical. I'm curious how you think about competition as it relates to marketing and, and your marketing strategy? And, and does it have much of an impact on the ideas that you try, where you choose to invest, all that good stuff? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing for competition is, you know, we're out in Vancouver and we're lucky to be Clue customers. So Clue is like one of our favorite competitive intelligence tools that helps us keep an eye on what's happening in the space without us lifting a finger. So huge shout out to the Clue team. But from a strategic perspective, I have a very different approach than a lot of marketers. I believe that if you are following your competitors and emulating, you're always going to be behind. And that means you're not focusing on your customers. I believe always on focusing on the customers and their pain and staying in your own lane and building and doing something while having platforms like Clue that keep you up to date on the really key elements of like where things win, right? So like I know some scenarios where one company promised 24 hour support and that was like a big differentiator for them. And, you know, a tool like Clue would find out that actually they changed that to 12 hours now. So, you know, that deal that we lost to this Fortune 100 company wouldn't have been lost if we knew that and could have that be in the context. So you got to find the ways to like mine for the gold that help you equip for your story and your strategic narrative and have this place to your category. But I'm a huge proponent of looking forward, being unique and doing your own thing, because that means that you're probably the first person to do it. And it's not going to have that same level of skip past it or saturation or diminishing returns as others. And you know, when you're the leader, when other folks are copying you and we start to see it already with the number of people that are trying to spin off similar concepts as us, emulate our market strategy, or even try to like verbatim copy what we've done. It tells you that you are in the lead and that they are following. And that's where I like things to be. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially going back to your other point of just kind of changing the game, right. And making it your own and aligning it with your own kind of strengths and and resources. So my last question, Mark, is any big insights or predictions in how you see marketing evolving today and and where you see it going over the next few years? I mean, I think I think of you as someone who's really on the cutting edge of that. So I'm curious to hear kind of where, where you see it going. Yeah, I think one of the biggest takeaways that I've been thinking of a lot about, and you'll start to see some motions in the market that reinforce this, is that the smartest companies are not treating their marketing departments as silos, and they're not building traditional units. Instead, they're building media arms. 
So when you see companies like HubSpot who just purchased the Hustle newsletter and folks who are investing in this space, they are literally building a media arms for their brand. Because if you create the best content, but don't have a distribution engine that's scalable, or you don't have a brand moat that people will know you by, it doesn't matter. And fundamentally, I think the smartest companies will be building media arms and fundamentally shifting their perspective on where they're investing in marketing strategy, knowing that it is much harder to measure the qualitative and quantitative impact of brand, but fundamentally is one of the biggest moats that mean that a product that is exactly the same between two competitors, you can charge 3x as much and have a billion dollar unicorn valuation as opposed to, you know, maybe like a series C with 150 employees. So that would be my, my one takeaway, build a media arm, do it now yeah. before you, you lose the opportunity. And I think that's a, it's a really interesting point too, just around brand. And I think that that's a really hard conversation to have internally and to really invest heavily in when you're a C-stage company, just trying to hit short-term user and revenue goals so that you can get to the next round and get to the next round. Brand is something that takes time. You've got to invest. It's a more strategic, longer term play. And so it's really interesting just to hear your take of, of yes, it is, but you should still be doing it from the get-go because it's that's what's going to end up being a big part of your moat. Well, Mark, it's been a really good chat. Are there any final thoughts, tips, tricks you want to leave folks with to summarize? I would say at the end of the day, be different. If I was going to put up a billboard somewhere, it would be that same thing that I talked about. Build for that 100 users that are going to love what you're doing. Be different. Change the game to play in your rules. You do not have to play the game that your competitors or your industry have set up for you. You can fundamentally rescope in the same way you can job craft within your role. And I think too many people place self-limiting beliefs on what something should be, as opposed to re-exploring that altogether. And I think that some of the same creativity that we have seen in the B2C space needs to come into B2B. B2B does not mean boring, nor should you feel limited by that. So whatever you can do to make sure that you add some personality, some fun, some humor, some delight, however you interpret that, just make sure that the next thing you do from a marketing perspective brings those in because that's really what builds relationships with people and people buy from the folks that they have relationships with. At the end of the day, that's why brand wins. You can win the hearts and the minds. That's how you get the purse strings. So just be different, do you, and know that it's not always easy but in the long run, you will also build a brand as a marketer, as someone who is doing something different. And I mean, you know, when I joined SaaS, I didn't know anyone. I had a really small network. And for me, it's like 5X in less than a year and has opened up so many doors. Like when I met you and you introduced me to Andrea over at Electric. And I think sticking in your lane is not going to broaden the horizons that you need to grow as a marketer and just as a person in the same way that, you know, if you've never traveled and never experienced the world in different cultures and perspectives, it opens up the mind. I find that pushing the boundaries on that side of marketing has done that for me personally. So. Love it. I think that's a great note to end on. Well, Mark, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us and coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Evan. And looking forward to, yeah, hopefully uh, eventually getting you some hot sauce when you all right. And that's our show. If you like this episode and want to hear more, subscribe to the Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
you're gonna cruise the Miracle Mile. Nowadays you can't be too sad.